the middle of a, I don't know, I don't know if you feel it this morning. I'm just going to say this. It's, it's probably bad technique as a preacher to admit this. I don't, I don't know if you feel it. There's a heaviness here. You feel that this morning? A heaviness, a distractedness, a somberness. You feel that? It's okay to admit it. Kind of like, man, it's kind of, it's kind of like grinding gears this morning. It just, just doesn't seem like what, man, something's not right. Let me tell you, there's no doctrine, there's no teaching in all the world which Satan would rather you not have than the teaching of the resurrection. There is no truth in God's Word he would rather you never hear than that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And he sure does not want you to believe it. Because when you believe it, though he wants your soul, he cannot have your soul. So I'm not surprised. And as we go through this service, and as we go through the next weeks going through the resurrection, I would not be surprised if you're distracted with lots of opportunities to go do lots of other things. And even mentally go other places while the Word's being presented. Because He doesn't want you to know it. There's two ways Satan attacks the church. One is affronts directly at the church. Those usually turn bad for Him. When He assails a doctrine like the atonement, the, the scholars of God rise up and defend it with fervor and passion. Like the cross. And we, we've done that for centuries. It usually goes bad for him. There's a second approach he takes. And that is to lull us to sleep on a doctrine. So that we just ignore it altogether. And it's hardly ever mentioned, even from the pulpit. The resurrection is an example. I want you to think with me. I was thinking about this this week. I was telling Amy on the way back from Fort Payne last night. As a child, I was at church every week. Outside of Easter, I'm not sure I ever, ever, ever heard an explicit reference to the resurrection. Ever. Ever. And it was a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, evangelical church. You ever had that experience? Go weeks with no one mentioning the resurrection? Go weeks, months, years? If you missed Easter, you just missed it. We celebrate the resurrection once a year. It's sad, isn't it? And that neglect, you know, strikes me. And it's, it's amazing. And it, it's not new. I mean, every preacher of, of the Word of God likes to believe that God will use the preaching of the gospel to intervene in the life of someone in the congregation and save their soul. That's, that's, that's what all of us do. The, the question that I have for myself and, and my colleagues and my brothers in preaching is, do we expect God to convert a soul when we preach? Do I mount this platform, stand in this pulpit, open God's Word with the full, ready expectation that somebody in this room is going to be changed for eternity? And the answer to that is often no, sadly. I come here, I preach, preach hard, Preach right, and I'm satisfied with that. It's, I've done my duty. It's good. Go home, eat lunch, go about my daily work or whatever, counseling, whatever it might be. It's just been a good day in the Lord. And not even a thought, though, why didn't someone believe today? No brokenness over that. Is it that we're all Christians? Everyone in a room this size, everyone. Is a believer every Sunday? I doubt it. 
I don't think so. We just don't expect it. And that's not a new problem with preachers. It's not a new problem with churches. Unfortunately, the expectation of salvation is not always in a service. You know, we come to do the duty. Show up. Play the songs. Sing the songs. Preach. Go home. That's our duty. We do that because God says to do it. But no expectation of God at all. C.H. Spurgeon was said one time, and this quote just struck me this week. Listen to this. You must always believe in the power of that message, the gospel, to save people. You may have heard the story of one of our students who came to me and said, I've been preaching now for some months and I do not think I've had a single conversion, Spurgeon said to him. And do you expect that the Lord is going to bless you and save souls every time you open your mouth? No, sir, he replied. Well, then, I said, that's why you do not get souls saved. If you had believed, the Lord would have given the blessing. I had caught him very nicely. Now, you got to kind of know Spurgeon. He's quick-witted and sharp with the tongue. He put the man in a trap, and then he clamped it and laughed at him, you know, in his heart. I'm sure. I'm sure he's respectful. He was toying with his student. He wanted his student to really feel the weight of no expectations of God. Just preach and go home. He wanted him to understand that's not what we're about. We're not here just to put on a show and go home. He goes on to say, but many others would have addressed me in just this same way. They, trembling, believe that it is possible by some strange, mysterious method that once in a hundred sermons God might win a quarter of one soul. You, got, you appreciate his humor? A quarter of a soul? A hundred times preaching? And you're going to get a quarter of a man? I mean, that, that's, that's the way some of us enter the pulpit. That's the way you enter this building, probably. God's not going to save anybody. It's going to be routine. They have hardly enough faith to keep them standing upright in their boots. How can they expect God to bless them? I like to go to the pulpit feeling. This is God's word that I'm going to deliver in his name. It cannot return to him void. I have asked his blessing upon it, and he is bound to give it, and his purpose will be answered. He had conviction. He had preaching power. Like nobody in the English language, Spurgeon was powerful in his preaching. And as I was reading that, I was convicted because I, as I search his sermons and read his sermons, there is a lot of power there. 7,620 times in his printed sermons, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 7,620 times, far more than any other doctrine, Spurgeon preached on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. More than twice a sermon on average, he talked about resurrection. And why did I bring that out? Because I think there's a hole in our preaching. My preaching and the church's preaching today. We've been lulled to sleep. You've been lulled to sleep. We assume the resurrection and we know nothing about it. We know nothing about what it does for us. We know nothing about how crucial it is to us. We just think it's a byproduct of the death and burial. And he was going to be resurrected. No big deal. Ho hum. Let's go on. No. This doctrine, the resurrection, is powerful to save. And I'm going to tell you up front, I believe someone here today is lost. And I'm pray, I have prayed for you 
and I'm going to continue to pray and preach that you might be saved. I think it's that vital. I think it's that important. I think it's that crucial that you know Jesus Christ. So let's read the passage and let's look at what God says in His Word about the resurrection. The resurrection following after Paul's description in the first 11 verses, which we covered last week, Paul's description, his defense. He's given a description, now he gives a defense. I want to read the passage, and then I want to look at it with you. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. It does not return void. Have your way. Do your work. Save a soul. Convert a man from darkness to light. Take a man from death to life. Make the resurrection today applicable to a specific man, woman, child, or many in this room in the fact that because Christ is alive, now their spirit is alive and they look forward to the physical resurrection which is to come in whenever your timing presents it. Oh God, help us now as we travel this road. Keep our minds sharp and focused. Help us Now, as as we hear your word, to respond in faith and repentance and belief. It is in your name we pray. Amen. It's often said that the resurrection was a new doctrine introduced by Jesus Christ and his disciples. Some people would go as far as to say the resurrection wasn't even a part, really, of Jesus' teaching on the earth, though he mentioned it here or there in, in shrouded comment. It was only until Paul and the disciples that we really found a full-blown exegesis and explanation of the resurrection. And I want to take this time this morning. This is not academic. This is not uh, an addition. I think this builds the sermon. If you miss this part, you may miss the whole sermon. Okay, so don't miss this part. There's a lot of Scripture references here. Don't look them up. Write them down if you want to. Look them up later. Don't try to flip. You'll never get there. Okay, but I do want you to focus on what these passages say. Because I do not believe that the Word of God is silent on the resurrection until after Christ is raised. Luke chapter 24, Jesus says in verses 25 and 27, Having met the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, and seeing their sadness, look, listen to what he says. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and then the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
not just his suffering and death, but his resurrection. He went to the Old Testament and said, I was dead and buried and you should have known I was coming again. You should have known that from the Old Testament. So where does the Old Testament talk about resurrection? Because a lot of people believe this. You may have fallen for this trap. You may have fallen for this trap when someone said, well, show me where it says that Jesus is going to be resurrected in the Old Testament. And you stutter. You know, I, I know. It, because it's so common in our day to say it's a new thing. Well, let's just start at the beginning. Adam and Eve, cursed for their sin. Death is their curse. In the promise, in the curse is a promise. In 315, you know it. Your seed, one seed, Jesus Christ, will crush the serpent's head. And you will strike his heel. Speaking to the suffering, speaking to the, the, the trials, speaking to the cross. He'll strike your heel. Christ was bruised. Christ was beaten. Christ was crucified. But how did he crush the head of Satan? You ever thought about that? I think if I probably polled you without leading you to it, you and I would probably say, through the crucifixion. Yes and no. Yes, through the crucifixion. But if he's just crucified, then he's not bruised, he's crushed. In the curse is a promise of resurrection. How will he crush the head of Satan? Through crucifixion and resurrection. That's how. So, right at the beginning, Adam and Eve, we see the resurrection. Then we see in Enoch. Now, that's a strange place to go, right? We don't even talk about Enoch that much. Enoch, five, Enoch in Genesis 3. I mean, Genesis 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he could not be found, for God took him. That's not a traditional resurrection. He didn't die. Enoch did not die. Enoch has never tasted death. Enoch was walking with God in his life, living a righteous life, and God translated him immediately to heaven. His body didn't fall to the ground as a seed. His body was transformed into a new body for glory, incorruptible. Enoch doesn't ever taste death. What does that have to do with the resurrection? It's, it's a peak. It's a light to say there is life after death. All these died, but Enoch didn't die. And Enoch is like a picture, a little peak, a little crack in the dark landscape of the Old Testament to say there's something beyond the grave. Because Enoch never went to the grave and he still lives, there's hope for those who even taste death that they may live again. And so we have Enoch. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. This is what the Word of God says. At the burning bush, he says, I am the God of your father, talking to Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Jesus, talking about that instance in Luke 20, verses 37 through 38, says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. Jesus said the resurrection was being taught by the very title for God 
father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Isaac, the story of Isaac being sacrificed in Genesis 22.5. Abraham speaks to his servants and says in 22.5, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. God's told him Isaac will be sacrificed. Abraham says we're both going to come back. Hebrews interprets for us. Listen to these words in 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only promised son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this. The writer of Hebrews says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham believed in resurrection. He believed that God could raise him even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, as from the dead. Hannah, speaking in praise to God in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, says this. Did you miss this in the prayer? The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Hannah believed in a resurrection. David David in 2 Samuel 12, 23, his son, born in adultery, because of adultery, dies as God had promised. And he mourned as the baby was sick and they were scared to tell David that the, that the baby had died. They were scared he might do something more drastic. He was already fasting and not eating and not drinking and weeping and praying and begging with God. And they came in and they told him, and these are his words, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. That passage has been a bomb to the soul of grieving parents for centuries. Why? Because it speaks, it pictures, it looks like a resurrection. There's no hope if all David's saying is, I'm going to die and go in the ground and be eaten by worms. That's not hope. He would fast and cry and continue in his mourning. But he didn't. He rose up and he washed himself and he put on his robes and celebrated because he said, I will go to him. He believed in a resurrection. Elijah and Elisha, First Kings, those books we hate to read, or maybe you like it because you like war and killing and all the crazy things, heads of, float, of axes floating on water. And I mean, it's a really neat thing. If you kids are into, like, you know, uh, Harry Potter and all that kind of stuff, the, the Bible's better. <laughs> Harry Potter's okay, the Bible's better. The Bible's interesting. Filled with these stories. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah raises a man from the dead. He prayed. Now, it wasn't a traditional resurrection in the sense of Jesus. It was a resuscitation. But the man was dead, graveyard dead. And Elijah said, prayed, asked God, and he was raised. Elisha, in 2 Kings 4, 32-37, does the same thing. He prays and a man is given his life back. He's resuscitated. He lived. Second Kings chapter 2, Elijah himself is caught up to glory. Not tasting death like Enoch, he was caught to glory. He was transfigured in the air going to be with Christ. Why did he do that? Enoch in Genesis here in Second Kings in the middle of the Old Testament, it's like, it's like God said, don't forget Enoch. Don't forget. Here's Elijah. See, he did it too. There's life after the grave. It's not just this one and done life and then it's all over. There's life after the grave. God's 
really letting us know it. The Psalms are filled. For times like I won't go through all the Psalms. I mean, they're, they're filled with references to life after Sheol, after the place of separation. But I do want to go to Job because Job is a powerful book to show the resurrection. Job is a bleak, dark book, isn't it? You read Job lately? You felt like Job lately? The world's bad. It's getting worse. I'm sick. My children are dead. My wife's now telling me to curse God and die. My friends have showed up weeping and mourning and wailing and sitting in silence for days. Man, that just makes you feel good, doesn't it? Next time you're in the hospital, I think I'll just come frowning and just sit in the chair and say nothing and just stare at you. See how uncomfortable it makes you. No greeting. No, Job, we're on your side. Would you like something to eat? Could we help you? Looks like you're in pain. No, just sit and stare like he's a freak show of some kind, you know? Right. And so Job is a dark, dark book. But there's these glimmers of hope. If you're suffering, if you have suffered, if you're struggling with death, with sickness, with this world, listen to the words. of You haven't suffered as much as Job. I haven't suffered as much as Job. Listen to what he says in Job 14, 12 through 14. So a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. The most common way to refer to death in the Bible is... Sleep, which speaks of a resurrection. People sleep so they wake up. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. Not bright enough for you? You want a little more, a little brighter glimmer about the resurrection from Job, the suffering servant? Job 19, 23 through 27 is one of the most powerful passages in all the Old Testament. He says, oh, listen to what he says about his own words. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. He wants these words to be remembered forever. What does He want us to remember in the middle of His suffering? For I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He shall stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. In the middle of the greatest suffering known to any human, he said, my Redeemer lives. And though my flesh rot in the grave and be eaten by maggots, yet I will see him standing on the earth with my eyes and not someone else's eyes. I will see him in my flesh, and he will be in his flesh. That, my friends, is hope in the middle of suffering. Don't tell me the resurrection isn't in the Old Testament. Jesus had all of these passages to go to 
and to talk with them about. Proverbs 12, 28. In the path of righteousness is life, and its path, in, in its pathway there is no death. What? That only makes, friends, it makes sense if there's a resurrection. If you're righteous, you will not die. That's what it says. Isaiah. Isaiah. The great prophet, 14, chapter 14, 9 through 11. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who are leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. Dark. Doesn't look like a lot of hope, but then, that's in 14, in Isaiah 25, listen to his words, verses 7 through 9. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. What covering is cast over all peoples? Death. Death. The veil that is spread over all nations. Death. He will swallow it up on this mountain. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Jesus, my friends, was crucified on a mountain where He swallowed up death and then was raised up out of a grave so the death has no sting, and He wipes away the tears of the faithful. Don't tell me the resurrection is some byword that came out in Paul's teaching, some strange doctrine that had never been heard in all of mankind's history. The Jews in the Old Testament had plenty witness that God would raise the dead. That He would raise the dead. Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead shall live. Does it get any more clear than that? Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. There's no resurrection in the Old Testament. Who would ever get the thought? You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. It's not a feeble hope. It's not a wishful hope. It's a sure hope when your faith is in Christ, that you will raise from the dead. Isaiah 40, verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, that's in the passage quoted about John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. And it is commonly preached as a Christmas text. But as Aaron and I were talking, I added it to the list because he was very convincing. (laughs) It's, It's what he wants on his tombstone. It looks like a verse about resurrection, doesn't it? The voice of the Lord shall come, and all flesh shall see him in his glory. When he came the first time, he was the glory and radiance of God, but it was hidden. All men did not see it. All men did not understand it. But when he comes again, he will come in his glory. He won't hide it any longer. There there he will be, in the body, in glory. What a beautiful passage, I think. 
Isaiah 53, 10 through 11, the suffering servant passage. Listen to these verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, God, shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. How will he extend Christ? Through resurrection. Jonah. I won't read the whole book to you. You'd get bored, probably, and chew me out. But the whole book is about the resurrection. How do I know? Because Jesus said, you won't receive any sign except the sign of Jonah. He was in the belly of the whale three days, or fish three days. So I'll be in the grave three days, and then I'll be raised from the dead. The whole book of Jonah is about the resurrection. If you don't get the resurrection out of Jonah, you don't get Jonah. You missed it. You missed it. Daniel 12, 2 through 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. Daniel. Speaking of the resurrection, Hosea 6, 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revile us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Hosea 13, verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. That's the quote Paul's going to use at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection is in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14. Therefore prophecy, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will... Place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, that's a spiritual reference. I don't doubt that. I believe that. That's speaking of a spiritual transformation that happens in the new covenant when you put your faith in Christ. But it's not a true statement if he doesn't actually open graves in the future and lift bodies. What he's done in the spiritual resurrection, when you put your faith in Christ, believing in Christ, you were raised spiritually. John 5 says, when you heard his voice, you were answering the call. You were raised, regenerated, given life in your spirit. And that is looking forward to the body being resurrected. Disembodiment is not the future of all mankind. We're not going to float around on clouds with little diapers on shooting arrows at one another for the rest of eternity. That's a Roman myth. Some people believe it. The next time you're at a funeral and somebody says they've gone, they're gone, they're now an angel. They're not an angel. Right now they're disembodied. We know that they are because Revelation says they're in the altar crying out, How long? How long until you avenge our blood? Not just the martyrs, but all the saints are disembodied, crying out, waiting for the resurrection. Come on, Jesus. Let us have our bodies. And they are reigning and ruling with Him in heaven even now. In this millennial reign, they are there reigning with Him, waiting for the resurrection of the dead when they will be resurrected and given a new body. 
They will live in their bodies like we live in our bodies. Why? Because Christ lives in His body forever. This doctrine is central. It's crucial. I I mean, I, I cut some of the references out. Maybe you think I gave too many. I think I may not have given enough. If somebody ever tells you the Old Testament silent on resurrection, just laugh. Keep a little card in your pocket, hand it to them, say, go home and do some devotions. It's there in bold type. Why? Because it's crucial. If we miss the resurrection, we don't have the gospel. And that's the point of the, me- of the message. Here we are in 1 Corinthians 15. You say, all of that, Carlton, for what? For this. There were people in Paul's day who had the Old Testament who did not believe in the resurrection. Who not only didn't believe it, but were teaching others not to believe it. Oh, there were at least two we know of, Hymenaeus and Philetus, that Paul says have gone off of the deep end not believing in a resurrection. A true bodily resurrection. They believed in a spiritual resurrection. He says they're heretics. But maybe their, their party has somehow gotten to the Corinthians. I don't know. Maybe it's just the Sadducees. Because they were sad, you see. Not believing in a resurrection. You heard that in Sunday school, didn't you? Yeah, there were a group of the ruling Jews who did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees may have gained foothold. Maybe their following was there. Some Jews from their party had been converted and they still were holding on to no bodily resurrection. Maybe it was an early Gnostic thing that was beginning to happen in the church where the body needs to be freed from the flesh because the flesh is sinful. It's evil. It's bad. Which, by the way, we'll do next week and talk about if you hold to that, you'll become the most adulterating, fornicating, sinful people in all the world. That doesn't lead to piety. That leads to rebellion and open sin. My flesh won't live anyway, so just live and let live. Maybe I'll die quicker. My soul will be free. That's the heresy that comes later. But maybe it's here too. Maybe it's beginning to creep into Corinth. But Paul's concerned and he wants to be clear. So he's laid out in the first 11 verses the gospel which we preach. Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, was raised in accordance to the Scriptures. In verse 4, what Scriptures? The ones I read and many more. He was raised according to the Scriptures. And then he gave the eyewitnesses. As a matter of fact, a secular historian I was reading this week said, if the death, burial, and resurrection are not true, this is a secularist, if those things are not true, we can trust nothing from ancient history. It's the most verified fact in all the world. That's a secularist. That's a secularist. The resurrection is true. Why? Because we don't have one witness. We don't have two witnesses. We have... Over 500. We don't just have one appearance or two appearances. We have many appearances in 40 days. Maybe it was a hallucination. The leading psychologists of the day tell us that hallucinations do not build confidence. They tear the mental state down, even to depression and killing oneself. The apostles don't strike me that way. They weren't crazy. Well, maybe they're just... Middle Eastern fishermen and uneducated people, and they made this myth up. Really? So after five, six, seven of them die, somebody doesn't say, hey, you know what, we were upstairs, didn't know what to do after Jesus, we had lost our fishing business, we made the story up, I don't want to die. 
you can't get over 500 people to, co- to, to cooperate in a conspiracy when death's on the line. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's not a hallucination. These people weren't crazy. Maybe it's just that they believed in the resurrection. No. Nobody in their day believed in a resurrection. They were laughed and scoffed at just like we are. So what drove them to believe it? It's true. My question to you would be, why don't you believe it? Why? Because if you don't believe it, you cannot be saved. And that's what Paul says right here. Paul, first of all, argues that Christ's specific resurrection guarantees the general resurrection. This is so simple and yet so profound. Look in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. These Corinthian philosophers are not only rejecting the teaching of a future resurrection, they're rejecting the teaching of the resurrection, Jesus Christ and His resurrection. The gospel rests on the foundation of a resurrection. I know that's repetitive. I've said it several times, but I don't know that you believe me yet. I want to make sure you believe it. If Jesus dies... And he rots in a grave. We have no hope. God did not accept his sacrifice. He is not satisfied and now there is no offering for sin. That's how crucial it is. So he argues from the specific to the general. If, If there is no resurrection, then not even Christ is raised. The specific resurrection of Christ is a guarantee there will be a general resurrection. And if Christ is not raised, he's going to later say, you're still in your sin. So he says, if you give up this doctrine, you've given up the gospel, it doesn't matter that he died on a cross. Listen, thousands of people died on crosses under the Roman rule. Thousands. But only one was raised from the dead. Only one. Secondly, Paul argues it. assures us that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. What I'm doing right now is a waste of time unless Christ is raised from the dead. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 says, This is how one should regard us, Paul speaking, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, If we're not trustworthy, then you shouldn't believe anything we tell you. If you find us to be lying about one fact, then all facts shouldn't be listened to, and you've got to find somebody else to teach you. I'm not worthy. I'm not trusted. He stakes his trustworthiness on the resurrection. So if the resurrection is not true, Paul is not a trustworthy servant and his preaching cannot be accepted and we have to tear out over half the New Testament and throw it away. If he's wrong about the resurrection, he could be wrong about all of it. And I would say if he's wrong about the resurrection, even if he's right about the rest of it, what does it matter? The resurrection is crucial to preaching. It's... In the sense, it is the power of preaching. 
If the resurrection did not actually occur, physical resurrection, Jesus actually bodily taken from the grave and alive, if that did not happen, then Paul's a liar. And he's not a servant of God. Or he's a servant of God and God is a liar. And that would be blasphemy. So, if the resurrection is not true, preaching is in vain. It's meaningless. Paul further asserts and finally asserts in this passage that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. The reason our faith is useless is because if the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. That's what he says. Look at the passage. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. The general resurrection is now being used to prove the specific resurrection. Earlier, he used the specific to reason in favor of the general. Now he turns around and says, the general proves that the specific is the case. If it happens once, it can happen over and over again. And if it happens over and over again, didn't it find its root in the one resurrection? That's what he's saying. It all happens because Christ was raised from the dead. That Christ was raised from the dead. Romans 4.25, Paul says, Who was delivered up? Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This means that if Christ is not raised, we are not saved from our sins. He was raised for our justification. Now, Maybe you've gotten into the habit of talking about justification only in terms of the crucifixion. But may I just warn you that when the Bible speaks, and we're going to see this next week in the sermon, when the Bible speaks and when Paul and Peter speak in their epistles, their letters, saying that Christ was crucified, they assume the resurrection. They can say that His crucifixion has justified us, and they can turn around and both of them will say His resurrection justified us. What what do they mean by that? They're taking two terms and putting them together. They're saying they are synonymous. They both happened. They are taken for granted and we're writing in shorthand. That's that's what they're doing. It's a, there's a technical term for it. You We don't use the term, but there's a literary device being used. They're shortening for space, for time. And because they assumed it and they taught it, the atonement, the atonement is at stake here. What do I mean by that? Look what it says in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What he's saying is, is that unless God raises Jesus from the dead, we're not certain he accepted his sacrifice as enough. If Jesus is dead and in the grave, we have no assurance. We have no assurance. So what does this mean? How does it apply to your life? First of all, it applies, last week we saw, for humility. Proud men don't know the power of the resurrection. Paul said, he appeared last to me as one untimely born, an apostle. Not that I'm worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of the living God. And whatever I am is by the grace of God. It's not me. It's Him. If you're struggling with pride, you need to know the resurrection. You need to study the resurrection. You need to pray that God make it real in your life. 
Because the first application to your life of the resurrection in this first section here is humility. Some of you are plagued with pride. It's, it's not something you struggle with once in a while. It's your life. And some of your pride is in your religiousness. In how much you know or you think you know. I just want to warn you, you don't know the resurrection if that's your struggle. You don't know it. Not the power of it. Secondly, the resurrection applies to us in that it guarantees our salvation. It's not a sideline issue. You can't say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure about that resurrection. No, if you deny the resurrection, you're not a Christian. You're not a, you're not a Christian. Third, it gives power to ministry. You want your lost neighbor to be saved? You want your coworker to know Christ? Then you must believe in the resurrection. You must live as if you believe in the resurrection. You must preach the resurrection. You must talk of it all the time. And that's going to bring you into uncomfortable situations like talking about death. Christians should talk about death all the time. All the time. When's the last time you leaned across the fence and talked to your neighbor about when you're going to die? It's been a while for me. Been a while. I got an 80 plus year old woman. She's living next to me. I need to be talking to her about death. She's going to die. She'll say, well, it'll be offensive to her. You know, like you're putting her in the grave. No. No. It could be what jogs her to begin to think, I'm going to die. You know, we got a bad habit in America of believing we're going to live forever. In the flesh without tasting death. Some of you are turning the clock back as fast as you can. It just keeps running faster the other way, doesn't it? I know the feeling. We're trying to ignore the obvious. People are dying all around us, and Christians need to be talking about it. Not talking about it in a pessimistic way. Talking about it in a victorious way. Not walk around doom and gloom. Well, you're going to kick the bucket soon. You look like you already got one foot in the grave. No. But saying, you know, Did you see the headlines this morning? Did you see this person died? What do you think his family feels like? And then after they give their answer, say, yeah, they could, but they could feel a sense of relief knowing that he's with Christ. And they could already be looking forward to him being alive again. Alive again? Yeah. See, I know that guy. He was a Christian. And he'll be raised from the dead in Christ. Do you have that kind of hope? They're ready to listen to that. I'm, just, I'm telling you, they may laugh when you leave, but they'll listen. It's different. Why do we have such a pessimistic faith? Because we don't know the resurrection. Fundamentalists die on the altar of pessimism. Because we thunder a gospel without the resurrection. And then we wonder why nobody wants to come. It's because there's no hope in our message. And I've been guilty of it. And I don't want to be anymore.
The resurrection is a fact. The resurrection is more than a fact. The resurrection has changed my life. And it's changed some of your lives. And it's not just changing it for today. But it is a promise that we can bank on for the future. We will see Christ in our flesh. We will see Him alive. We will be alive with Him. And so I call you now to a time of celebration. Not funeral dirge. Not time to... uh, Mourn, but time to celebrate.